open your cerebral cortex and shift your lobes into upper beta phase because you are going to have Bitcoin knowledge transmitted directly into your vestibulocochlear. Your host at Bitcoin Knowledge is Trace Mayer, an early Bitcoin advocate since it cost a quarter, but this is not intended to be investment advice. A doctor of jurisprudence, but this is definitely not legal advice. And an investor in core cryptocurrency infrastructure, including Armory, BitPay, Kraken, and Mitagio, but this is not a recommendation of those services. Here, you get fed via direct mind download with pure and free Bitcoin knowledge. Warning, to mildly comprehend this interview may take many hours. The show notes will contain about 15 hours worth of background homework, and you may want to listen to this episode at least three to five times. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to the Bitcoin Knowledge Podcast. We have an incredibly inter- incredible interview today with Caitlin Long, uh, a Wall Street legend, right? And so welcome to the podcast, uh, Caitlin. Oh, thanks, Trace. That's a legend overstates the case, but you and I have known each other for years and it's really, really an honor to be on your show. Thank you. Well, I mean, tell us a little bit about your background. You started uh, in Wyoming, went to big old Harvard Law School, then went to Wall Street. One of the few women that has reached such a magnificent stature at Wall Street, you know, spent 22 years there. Uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about your background, what you did, how you, how you found yourself there. Oh, gosh. Uh, well, I uh, walked out of Harvard with more student loans than my parents' house was worth. So I kind of sold myself to the highest bidder, which was Wall Street at the time. And I, I found that I loved it and stayed 22 years. Uh, did lots of different things. Um, worked for a stint directly for the co-CEOs of Credit Suisse in Zurich. Um, uh, it did uh, Most recently ran the pension solutions business at Morgan Stanley. That's what I did after the financial crisis. And that enabled me to get a really good look into the plumbing of multiple assets on Wall Street. I sat in the capital markets area, so worked mostly on issuance, but really got into the plumbing of how assets move within Wall Street and learned and was able to apply the, the concepts of Bitcoin and blockchain to that knowledge once I discovered Bitcoin and blockchain. Now, I mean, you're talking about like with GM, for example, transferred what, like $26 billion of assets. And I mean, there's just a lot that can go wrong in that case, right? You've got Hertzstadt risk, you've got the risk of bank failure before close, you've got uh, counterparty risk, you've got all these little I's to dot and T's to cross, which, you know, as, as a lawyer, you're like, your neck's on the hook for this, right? So maybe you could talk a little bit more about you know, just a little bit of the war stories from uh, from that era of work. Well, I think one of the interesting war stories that you and I've talked about before is in that first big pension transaction, these pension deals were transferring assets and liabilities of a corporate pension plan over to an insurance company. And they had to be done intraday. You couldn't have a single asset not make it from the pension fund to the insurance company. Otherwise, the contract wasn't legal. So we spent weeks defining procedures to ensure that those assets, all of which transferred on different rails, ended up in the right place and we didn't have a failed transaction. And we practiced it. uh, And it turns out we actually, in the first one, we even did some of it in the middle of the night to avoid congestion on the rails and ensure that we had precision on the pricing. But the best uh, war story was was our, our... 
discussion of what cash meant. We were transferring so much cash that uh, uh, the lawyers at first were, were, I asked the question, what do you mean by cash? Do you mean loading up thousands of Brinks trucks because we were transferring three and a half to four and a half billion dollars of cash? And uh, I wanted to know, did they want, uh, a, you know, a Fed wire? And, you know, how are we going to deal with a, with a wire of that size? We had to make sure that all of the approvals were in place to be able to transfer that cash intraday and make sure that it got from the sender to the, the receiver without any hiccups, because a single hiccup would have made the whole transaction fall apart. And luckily, you know, because we paid that much attention to detail, it, uh, it, it all worked and we created a, a whole market. I'm very proud of that market. We have a lot of pensioners who now have overfunded pension plans with de-risked assets uh, that are actually have a much higher probability of getting their pensions paid than, than the old corporate pensions. I'm very proud of that. But boy, did I learn a lot of, of, of uh, the muckiness of the operations of the financial industry and just how inefficient it is. Yeah, I mean, it's just obsolete technology and software. So like when 2007, 2008 hit, how did that send you down the rabbit hole where you eventually found yourself into this blockchain space? Well, I knew that the mainstream explanation for the financial crisis was lacking. And there was a contradiction. I heard Secretary Tim Geithner, who's a Treasury Secretary at the time, give an interview on Charlie Rose, where he said he admitted that interest rates had been held too low before the financial crisis. And that was a direct contradiction to what he had said previously. Um, and, 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 and he furthermore advised the Fed, argued that interest rates should be lowered still. So that was the contradiction. Wait a minute, if interest rates were too low going into the crisis, and now we're saying we have to lower interest rates even more, that was illogical to me. And that's what got me going down the rabbit hole and looking at all the whole gamut of alternative economics, because it was clear to me what I learned in school was not how the real world worked. And so, like, what beacon did you hone in on? Actually, a good friend of mine from a big hedge fund who'd been a client many years before, we've stayed in touch ever since, uh, one of the smarter guys is more connected to the, um, the, 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 the flow of information, if you will, than, than I was. I asked him for help. I said, but look, it's very clear the Fed is at the center of this problem. And I didn't know how the Fed worked. And I wanted his advice on how to go learn. And he advised me to start reading the Mises Daily Mail. And that I'd figure it out. And he was right. <laughs> well, isn't that helpful? Now, you know, it's kind of beyond the scope of this interview, the, the gold price suppression scheme and a lot of the work that GAD has done. But when we, look at, when we look at the solidity in terms of our financial system, could you perhaps explain a little bit about the difference between a debt-based monetary system and an equity-based monetary system? And then some of the war stories that have perhaps come out of that. I know you've written about the Dole Foods case and, and some others. Yeah, sure. The, an equity-based asset is nobody's IOU. There's no counterparty. It, it's, you, you own it outright. So examples of equity-based assets are, of course, Bitcoin. Um, there is no issuer, right? There's no counterparty. Um, gold, silver, all commodities, all real assets, real property, land, even your personal property, your car. You, you can own it outright. There is no issuer. It's not an IOU owed to you by someone. But debt-based assets are always IOUs owed to you by someone. And that someone might not make good on their promise. They might default. And it turns out that pretty much every single financial asset is a debt-based asset. 
And the mind bender here is that even the dollars in your wallet are debt-based assets. If you pull out your dollar bill and if you bother to carry a wallet anymore, uh, if, but it does actually say on it, Federal Reserve note, it is an IOU from the Federal Reserve, which is the only bank in the United States that has the ability to write IOUs on itself. But technically, all financial assets, including securities, are IOUs. And what's interesting is that like, the, the, the real... The real asset, well, I, I actually have to, have to clarify that. If you own your securities in paper certificate form, then you own them outright. They are an equity-based asset. But most securities, thanks to the SEC, are not issued in that form anymore, and we're all consequently forced into owning them in the form of IOUs. Every asset in a brokerage account, every deposit in a bank account is an IOU. And a lot of folks don't realize that. What we, don't, we don't own the real thing. We own an IOU from a leveraged counterparty who owns, owns an IOU from someone else. Who, and there may be a default somewhere along that chain. Um, and, and at the center of the banking system is, of course, the Fed, which is the issuer of the IOUs. At the center of the securities market is a company called the Depository Trust Company, which is the issuer of the IOUs. So when we're and and even a little bit further back when we're talking about these interest rates, the Fed, you know, Alan Greenspan, he testified twice before Congress that central banks, plural, stand ready to lease gold should the price rise. And so it's very odd behavior. If you own a lot of something, why run a cartel to keep the price down? And it it helps, you know, of course, their their power to issue currency is infinitely more valuable than the price of a portfolio asset. And so what effect does all of this hypothecation and rehypothecation have when it comes to interest rates and the pricing of assets uh, on a global scale? Well, look, it suppresses them. Generally speaking, it, you know, it, it can in the short term have a positive effect because it does create liquidity and liquidity begets liquidity. So generally speaking, liquidity is positive. But if the liquidity is coming from unbacked, the creation of unbacked claims to the asset, then it's not healthy. And it, it actually creates lack of scarcity where there was scarcity before. So I know you like to talk about the gold market. That's a perfect example. There's physical scarcity to physical real world gold. But if you create paper claims to gold, there's no scarcity to those paper claims. And therefore you can actually offset the real world scarcity of the asset by creating unbacked paper claims that have no connectivity to the real underlying asset. And that's, that's what happens in, on Wall Street in lots of different ways. They call it different things. They call it um, securities lending, they call it rehypothecation, they call it stock loan, but it's always the same thing. You're taking an asset and lending it out. And the crazy thing about the way the accounting works for that is that both parties, the, the original owner and the one that borrowed it, get to report it on their financial statements as if they both own that asset, but there's really only one asset. You know, one of my favorite parts about accounting is the cash flow statement. And, you know, you're, you had a very fascinating question, like, what is cash? And, you know, if we, if, we, if we start applying this to internet protocols, to cypherpunk terminology, you know, we have Nick Zabo and Dr. Adam Back, and they, you know, they both kind of have the assertion, you can build an insecure layer on top of a secure layer, but you can't build a secure layer on top of an insecure layer. And so in this case... Uh, gold might be the secure layer or Bitcoin, but then this rehypothecated 
uh, quagmire is the insecure layer that's built on top of it, if I'm understanding you correctly. Yeah, that's right. And, and pretty much all of Wall Street, because it's based on debt-based assets, is the insecure layer. The only secure layer is your, your actual equity-based asset, which is underlying that entire pyramid of insecure layer that's built on top of it. It's now, inherently unstable. And, and so when we look at the gold market where there's hundreds of, of paper ounces for every physical ounce that's actually in the vault, and you know, an interesting gold, uh, interesting war story, uh, I was a big investor in gold money before Bitcoin even existed, and James Turk, who came up with it, when he went to start the business back in 2001, first of all, none of the, ba- none of the bullion banks would uh, deal with him, but he finally like, you know, got a bullion bank to deal with him. And so they're going to make the contract. And a big deal with gold money is that a physical ounce has to equal a, a digital ounce in the database. And so what they wanted to do is they wanted to, they wanted to have their own little cage down in the vault in London. And they wanted to when, when they paid for the gold bar with the wire transfer, they wanted to move the physical gold bar into their own little cage, right? I mean, it seems simple yeah. enough. And the bullion bank was like, no, we won't do that. And they're, yeah. like, they're like, why not? We, we send the wire and like we own the gold. And they're like, well, that's just not how it's done. And so in order to start gold money, which now vaults over $2 billion of physical gold, they actually had to go... And because of some of the other shareholders who were big shareholders in mining and refinery companies, they had to go and strike a deal with a gold refinery and buy the physical gold as it came out of the refinery to to put in their own cage. Because none of the bullion banks would actually let people take physical delivery of the bars. Wow. Wow. And think about the analogy of that to Bitcoin, which we're going to get into in in a little bit. Yeah, because I mean, there's a lot of stuff that's similar here because... You know, with Bitcoin, when we're actually looking at the technology, we have UTXOs, which are the the transaction outputs, and you use UTXOs as the inputs and then the outputs. And so every transaction has a public key and uh, input, public key output. And so you melt down the UTXO and you recast it into a new UTXO that's associated with the with the with the outputs in that transaction, which you don't necessarily do with gold. You know, right. like at gold, at gold money, there was a there was a scare in the gold market about tungsten, and so what we did is we actually went and ultrasound tested every single gold bar because you have LBMA, uh, you know, standards, and then you have indemnification agreements within the chain of custody with LBMA, and so we ultrasound tested every gold bar, and we found eight anomalies, and we actually had those bars melted down and recast. And wow. they were, and they were actually just anomalies in the reporting. They were off like like by one one sure. thousandth of a of an of an ounce or something. So there wasn't anything materially wrong. But if there were, we would have exercised the indemnification clauses in you know on those bars if they weren't actually real gold bars. But in Bitcoin, every day we have tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of transactions that are melting down Bitcoin and recasting it every single day. And to have a, a valid transaction, you have to you have to do that on the yep. Bitcoin network. And so, you know, we're going to get a little bit more about this in, into this ICE-backed New York Stock Exchange uh, announcement that recently came out. Uh, but before we get that, I want to I want to get to uh, you know some of the definitions first. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I talk about the seven network effects. We've got speculation. Everybody chasing the rabbit. Uh, 
merchants, consumers, you know, that are using it in retail transactions because people are valuing it as speculators, miners securing it, developers building on the most secure blockchain. The sixth network effect, which is really the topic of this podcast, is financialization and then world reserve settlement currency. So financialization, if you look at any of the any of the comments or any of the Twitter conversations, people don't seem to know their nose from their ear. So perhaps you can help help us understand like what does financialization actually mean? Well, I think in the context of the sixth network effect that you talk about it, it's it's what I would call the good type of financialization, which is new investors are coming into the universe, especially institutional investors, and they're creating real liquidity, legitimate liquidity from investing in the asset class. But there is a, a bad type of financialization, which comes, I call it leverage-based financialization. That, that's liquidity that arises from the creation of unbacked claims to the underlying asset, creating more paper claims to the asset than there are actual assets. And that is, that is liquidity. It certainly can boost the, the price of the asset in the short term, and the speculators certainly like that. But over time, it's going to suppress the price of the asset because ultimately it, it does counteract the scarcity of the underlying. So the fact that there are so many more paper claims to gold and silver than there is actual gold and silver, that same thing could happen to Bitcoin. And I think that surprised a lot of people when I started talking about this a couple of days ago in the piece I wrote about Forbes, I wrote in Forbes.com. And then uh, yesterday came the ICE New York Stock Exchange announcement. And a lot of people, you know, the knee-jerk reaction was, oh my gosh, this is really positive. It's the mainstreaming. Of course, it is that. But I raised the question, this is probably a double-edged sword because I think this is the beginning of the creation of unbacked claims to Bitcoin, which so far have, they're happening on the margin, but they haven't happened in big size. Oh, well, what about OKX? I mean, $400 million isn't a very big size. Yeah, but, but it's still, that's, $400 million is nothing when it comes to institutional standards. And I do think that's one of the sources. I actually did have some folks saying, wait a minute, there is a Bitcoin lending market. Wait a minute, there's, there's, you know, there are big trades happening. But it's generally speaking very small compared to what an institution like the New York Stock Exchange a sister company backed could bring to the Bitcoin market. We're talking about substantially increasing the volume of transactions and they're building their own second layer um, and, 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 and likely starting to create unbacked claims. I had said in uh, unbacked claims to Bitcoin, I had, as I've written in that Forbes piece, which just was very lucky timing, it came out two days before the announcement, I was going to be on the lookout for big um, enterprise, you know, big incumbent institutions who introduce Bitcoin settled contracts as one of the warning signs that this bad type of financialization is coming. Now, what do you mean by Bitcoin settled? Because like I interviewed Paul Chow of Ledger X. They've got a swap execution facility. Uh, you know, they're, they're doing Bitcoin settled uh, swaps and then also putting call options. So what exactly do you mean by like a Bitcoin settled versus say a cash settled CME option? Yeah. So, 
That, that's a great point. The, the CME and CBOE, this is another thing that I think uh, there's confusion out there based on the social media con, um, announce, uh, comments, because a lot of people are like, wait a minute, CME and CBOE got into this a while back. This, this is old news. No, there's a huge difference. The, the ICE announcement of BACT is a Bitcoin settled contract, whereas the C, CME and CBOE are cash settled. LedgerX, you pointed out to me, LedgerX had already gotten Bitcoin settled derivatives and, and they got approval for it late last year. So those technically have already been out there, but in very small size. And it's interesting, I've attended a number of meetings and breakfasts of large institutional trading houses on Wall Street. And they're, they're, they look at the big counterparties. They want big balance sheets as their counterparties. They don't look at small startups as counterparties. Sure, on the margin, they'll trade with them. But the magnitude of the capital in the clearinghouse or the exchange matters to them greatly. So sure, on the margin, they're using LedgerX. But the, to bring in an ICE affiliate is just a different zip code. And that's, it's the big, you know, large balance sheet established players getting into this market that I was saying is a warning sign that we're going to start to see these unbacked claims uh, creep into the market. And indeed, two days later, it happened. Well, now, but these unbacked claims, they're happening on an insecure layer that's not in the base layer of Bitcoin. So if, you know, and as Mises writes, there's no way to avoid the final crack up boom. So if HODL, you know, if the HODL gang decides to take physical delivery of their Bitcoins to their own private keys, what effect could that possibly have on these gigantic balance sheets that you're, you're saying that these people only want to interact with? Well, it's interesting because I asked the question at one of the, one of the breakfasts that I, was, um, that I was invited to, and this was a, a group of credit traders. And I asked them, you know, what's the inherent limitation on Wall Street's ability to create paper Bitcoins that are not backed by real Bitcoins? And it was an interesting theoretical discussion because a couple of them hadn't thought it through. And again, a lot of Wall Street folks are just, you know, head down on their, in their own narrow areas of expertise and not necessarily asking a big question like that. What's the inherent size of the Bitcoin derivatives market, the paper claims to Bitcoin that are unbacked by Bitcoin? How big can that get if the hodlers are not allowing their Bitcoins to be available for borrow. So you talked about gold earlier. That's an asset that the financial system controls because mostly gold is owned by central banks or the, um, or, or the big gold vaults, which are owned by big financial institutions. So that is an asset that the financial industry can control how much leverage is placed on it because they actually own the underlying. In Bitcoin, that's not true. And so if, if, if we have hodlers that are not making their Bitcoins available to the institutional market to be lent and, and to create claim upon claim upon claim upon claim on top of, how big can that derivatives market get? And it was a question that stumped a lot of people. And I, I thought a lot about it before writing that piece on Forbes.com. I really do think that, that the hodlers are the reason to be optimistic that we're not going to see in the Bitcoin market the same trend as what happens in, say, gold and silver. We're not going to get that far out of whack in terms of paper claims to Bitcoin relative to the underlying. So do you think this could lead to a culture clash between the hodlers of last resort, as I like to term them, and speculators? You know, people like uh, Novogratz, for example, or other people who are just chasing the rabbit up and down? 
Yes. And by the way, I think that that fault line exists in the mainstream financial markets too. There's a, there's a term called real money investors. Real money investors are pension funds, mutual funds, insurance companies. These are long only investors for the most part. They don't do a lot of trading around their assets. They don't short they don't try to make it short, right? They have compliance departments that prevent them from doing that sort of thing. They're not the ones that caused the dull food problem. It's the speculators that caused the dull food problem, where there were 30, uh, there were 49.2 million valid claims, all backed up by brokerage statements, to the 36.7 million shares of dull food outstanding, right? So you actually had the financial system create one third more, more real claims to dull food shares than dull food shares exist. The, 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 the real money investors don't do that. And that's what we want in Bitcoin. That's the good type of financialization. The pension funds, the mutual funds, the insurance companies. Uh, now, now the, the, here's, here's the, the, the backdoor way that the speculators, though, can use the real money investors. And that is the details of how they, the real money investors hold those assets in custody are really going to matter. What do I mean by that? Yeah, yes, I mean, yes. could, could you give yeah. some example? Because like with Backed, we've got this guarantee fund, which like, <laughs> I mean, it, like there's no margin for error with Bitcoin. If you get hacked, like your cash balance is gone. Like there's no reversing. There's no like, how, how, could, a, how could a guarantee fund really cover a Mt. Gox or an OKX? Well, I think the devil in that one is going to be in the details, but I, I, will, I will note as a side note that the guarantee fund, the existence of a guarantee fund, means that BACT is de facto admitting that they are going to have unbacked claims to Bitcoin. Because if it were 100% backed, why would you need a guarantee fund? A bank that is literally just a money warehouse holding client balances on behalf of clients and never lending them out will never go bankrupt. They'll never need a guarantee fund. Well, what, if what about theft? Well, I don't know. The devil's going to be in the details on whether the guarantee fund um, covers theft. It, 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 guarantee funds typically are you know, 1% of the notional value, maybe 2%. You know, the FDIC or the PBGC, these are tiny funds relative to the massive, gigantic amounts of money that they guarantee. Yeah, it's, so like, it's like, what, $48 billion in FDIC versus like 10, 10 trillion of uh, client deposits or something like that? Yeah, I don't, I don't know the numbers, but it's, it, it's something on that order of magnitude. So guarantee funds are not designed for force majeure type, you know, massive losses. They're designed to cover small losses like the OKEX situation. Um, and, and clearly the fact that any clearinghouse admits that it needs a guarantee fund is a de facto admission that they are creating unbacked claims to the underlying asset because they would never need a guarantee fund if they weren't. They would never have any leverage and therefore never go bust if they weren't. Um, but but the, the, the point that I was making earlier about the, the, the custody arrangements for long-only investors is a little bit different. That is, the SEC requires that every asset manager who manages $150 million or more has to hold those assets in a segregated third-party custodian. And that's a vestige of history that, you know, Bitcoin folks will scratch their heads and say, why? Because you can't mess around with Bitcoin. It's totally transparent as to who owns it. Um, and with the exception of whether, whether the private keys are stolen, which is really more of a, a question of, for insurance, um, you don't really need a third-party custodian because you can't make off with the paper 
stock certificates or paper bonds like you could have 100 years ago when they created the, the need for the, uh, the custody rule. I think the custody rule is not 100 years old, but it's quite old. Anyway, long story short, it, it is in existence. And frankly, this is the one thing I wish the SEC would do is acknowledge that real blockchains are inherently custodians in and of themselves, and you don't need a third-party custodian. That would be the most helpful regulatory change that the SEC could do to, frankly, solidify the U.S.'s lead in these assets. But um, that's an aside. A custodian is like a State Street or a Northern Trust. These guys actually take the assets and hold them in custody. And again, in history, when securities were in paper form, they held them in a vault and they only delivered them when they verified that the customer had actually asked for them. Um, So the the modern analogy is these custodians are going to hold the private keys on behalf of the large institutions who don't want to hold the private keys themselves. But here's where the unbacked claims to Bitcoin can leak into the market. If the custodian turns around and lends out those Bitcoins, then right. that's when you can start to get unbacked claims because yeah, I mean, you get you got, the application chains. Yeah. Whether whether it's State Street or DTCC or, I mean, we, we've seen all types of uh, problems in this realm, haven't we? Yeah, and I, I'm optimistic. And this, I've spent a lot of time educating institutional investors, speaking to pension fund groups and the like on you don't want to actually lend out your Bitcoins. You may be forced into using a third-party custodian and giving them the keys, but don't let them turn around and lend it out because the moment you expose those keys, you actually do take a lot of risk that those assets disappear. These are digital bearer assets and it's not a traditional custodial relationship, which is why it's unfortunate that the custody rule is forcing crypto assets into this old regulatory regime where you've got to have a third party and you can't have responsibility for it on your own. Um, But that's the reality. And so I'm encouraging, just just like Andreas Antonopoulos is encouraging all the individual holders of Bitcoin, I'm encouraging the institutional holders of Bitcoin, do not engage in lending of your coins with a financial institution that's then going to turn around and rehypothecate. Because what they're going to do is promise those Bitcoins to multiple parties, all of whom will claim on their financial institutions that they own the Bitcoins, but there's really only one coin. Yeah, I mean, at Armory, when we had talked to institutions, they were very interested in holding their own keys. Uh, and, you know, but the software and the, and the procedures just aren't really built around uh, doing that. Maybe, maybe that solution will get solved. And, and you're also hitting on issues that are definitely problematic for the ETF and things of that nature, right? Sure. Yeah. And and I do think, again, the institutions you were probably talking to in the early days probably weren't the registered investment advisors managing $150 million or more. If you look at, um, you know, like how, how DRW set it up, they're all using an independent organization. DRW set up Cumberland, for example. Why did they have to set up an independent organization? Because they were already above $150 million in their main hedge fund business. So they had to set up a sidecar independent entity. Um, that that uh, holds their Bitcoin. Otherwise, they would have had to have gone out and and found a third party custodian and run into that smack dab into that problem that a lot of smart people are trying to solve, which is how are we going to create a third party custodian without forcing people to I- into major cybersecurity issues? Yeah. So let's let's talk. Uh, let's switch gears over to to this ICE announcement. Uh, to preface it. 
you know, the Bitcoin stock to flow is is just a very different dynamic. We have yeah. we have twelve and a half bitcoins produced every ten minutes. That's going to have uh, in about you know, uh, gosh, a year and a half or so. Um, we have seventeen million bitcoins total. So to really get new supply of Bitcoin, because you can't get it from mines like you do with gold. The, yeah. the, I mean, the stock to flow is just so low. Then the real flow of Bitcoin is going to be coming from those second and third network effects of the merchants and consumers. So perhaps you can help us understand how is this nice New York Stock Exchange back? How is how is the Bitcoin going to flow through this engine? Well, it's very interesting because they're using physical settled futures contracts. So they're going to be getting the Bitcoin as collateral from their customers. But there's also this parallel announcement of working with Starbucks on retail payments. And I Microsoft. found that, and well, right, Microsoft is providing the, the, the technology, the, the cloud, um, doing it on Azure, uh, which is great. I, Microsoft is, is, We've, they've, they've been a big supporter of this industry, and that's that's welcome. And as is Starbucks. I, I looked at the at the retail payments thing and said, "Yay!" Starbucks had um, Howard Schultz had said in an interview about six plus months ago that they were looking at doing a coin, and now we see what it is, and that's great. But what's fascinating to me is that ICE is an operator of exchanges; it's institutional financial market infrastructure, and now it's got a retail payments. A business appended to it. And you and I talked about this before the show. Why would it combine those two when they've never done anything in retail payments before? And I think you're hitting on it. It has to do with being in the flow of the Bitcoins is my guess. And my guess is that they are going to co-mingle. I don't know. This is a question that I asked Matt Lysing in a Twitter exchange to ask them, are they going to co-mingle the, the Bitcoins coming in and out of the the retail payments with Starbucks with the Bitcoins that are collateralized in the Bitcoin futures. And if you look at the Fortune magazine interview, where they go into a fair amount of detail, they do talk about holding the Bitcoins in an omnibus account. What I can't tell from that is whether they're commingling the Bitcoins in the, from both the retail and the payments piece. So if you were advising or, or, or interacting with institutionals that wanted to use this service, how would you recommend that they approach that user agreement or those terms in term when it comes to like what public key the bitcoins are actually like associated with or stored in? Well, I, it's the same advice that I give, which I learned from Andreas on on holding your own private keys. Sure, if you want to use an exchange, you're going to have to give up your private keys. You're going to have to send your coins to the exchange. But the moment that you transact, you want to take them back and possess your private keys again. You don't want to store your assets in that exchange because that's then an IOU. You don't own your Bitcoin unless you own your private keys. But furthermore, I would also, if you, if you have to post collateral, which of course on a futures contract, you're going to be posting collateral, I would also look into the details on whether that clearinghouse where you're posting your Bitcoins as collateral is going to rehypothecate your coins. I'm almost certain the answer is going to be yes, because that's the normal way that clearinghouses make money. They rehypothecate collateral and they make money by transaction fees on transactions. I, I, guess, a, I guess a different way to ask the question would be, instead of, instead of sending Bitcoins into one giant omnibus account that the exchange has, like why doesn't the exchange just provide a public key for each 
for each individual participant. And then that participant knows that their Bitcoins are sitting in a particular public key that the uh, that ICE or BACT is in, has access to, but they're able to track and see whether those Bitcoins move or not. Yeah, uh, well, that would be ideal. But that would just be a trivial software implementation. It would it? be. So what, why, wouldn't, why wouldn't ICE or BACT implement it that way? Because they can make more money by creating unbacked claims to Bitcoin. But who has to bear the risk when, the, when they do that? The Bitcoin owners who participate in, the, in, in, that, in that structure. So is there really any reason why the, the ICE or, or, or these backed uh, institutional customers, why they wouldn't demand to have the Bitcoins being in a specific public key? in order to make sure that their Bitcoins are, are safely segregated in this allocated, allocated type storage? Well, they absolutely should. And I, I, unfortunately, that's not the way clearinghouses work. When you use a clearinghouse or an exchange, you're going into an omnibus account. It's, it's very unlikely that BACT would agree to do that. But, but back on this other point about institutional custodianship, that's where the fiduciaries of the pension funds and the, and the managers of the mutual funds absolutely must take control of that issue and not allow their assets to be rehypothecated or traded in a securities lending market. There's too much risk, much more risk for, uh, for Bitcoin lending than there is for securities lending, where if something goes wrong, the, the, you know, there, there, there's a fault tolerance in the system where the footings don't have to match every night. And they can just create a paper, a new, a new, new paper share of dull food um, in order to make the totals match, right? You can't do that with Bitcoin. So, you, so that the, the lending risk on, on these um, custody arrangements is absolutely critical. But custody is different than exchange. Custody is just where you're storing. The exchange and the clearinghouse is where you're trading. And, and my advice to everyone, regardless of whether you're institution or or individual is don't store your assets on an exchange. I love um, Matt Levine, the 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 uh, big, uh, Bloomberg uh, uh, reporter who writes um, a Daily Mail. I, I almost always read. He's great. He just makes the point all the time that these Bitcoin exchanges exist for one reason, and that is to get hacked. And it's just <laughs> funny how he writes about it, but it's true, you know. And so. Um, Look, you know, that's the devil's in the details. If, if, you are, if you are storing your assets on one of those insecure layers, you are, number one, not owning your Bitcoin. Number two, you're allowing the financial system to leverage your assets and create multiple layers of paper claims. And number three, you're insecure. And so you, you really want to make sure that your custodian, either self-custody or if you're a big institution and you can't because you're too big, You've got to be sure you control that relationship. Well, and is, doesn't this go back to just the type of plumbing? When you're dealing with omnibus accounts, I mean, it's, it's a bank account, right? It's not like you're going to create a, a bank account, a, bank, a client trust account for each institution's money that comes in. I mean, it just all gets wired into the omnibus account. But, That's right. But in Bitcoin's case, it's a trivial software implementation to give each institution their own bitcoin address to to send coins into that's right so, so in terms of the plumbing like it, it just doesn't i mean i could see where for practicality you would have an omnibus account in terms of the bank accounts because you don't want to create individual bank accounts for uh, on the on the exchange side for each you know 
uh, partner. But in Bitcoin's case, you're just you're just creating all these addresses uh, uh, so, on a software wise, and, and and then you're you're able to derive it, you know, using hierarchical deterministic wallets. So you're you're backing up the seed once, but then you're able to create a million different public keys out of that, and each public key can be unique for each participant. And so mm-hmm. then those participants can verify that the bitcoins are actually in those addresses, and they can see whenever they move in or out. And it's like, whoa, whoa, why'd the Bitcoins move out? <laughs> I mean, if there's no real reason uh, for that to happen under the user agreement. Yeah, absolutely. And I've ex- personally experienced that. And one of, one of my pension clients discovered on authorized securities lending in the security side that they would not have been able to discover because the brokerage statements didn't show it. It was only when they were trying to transfer the assets uh, uh, to, to the insurance company to close this pension deal where they got a call from the custodian saying, whoops, we've got about 15 securities that we don't have. And uh, at that time, I, I if, you know, at first hung up the phone and thought, oh my God, this deal's going to fall apart. But then I called him back and said, no, this is, this is wrong. You need to demand to talk to the compliance department. Um, if they didn't have authorization to do this and they were doing it anyway, that's a huge compliance issue. And if that you don't get satisfactory answer from them. Tell them you're going to the SEC this afternoon. And magically, all those securities came back and we closed the deal and, and you know, nothing ever got publicly reported. That kind of stuff happens all the time. And you're absolutely right. Bitcoin has the ability to give owners of assets, pension funds, fiduciaries, the control over those assets. The problem is that they lose that control if they go into these pooled arrangements. And that's why it's so important for the real money investors who are good financializing Bitcoin to keep control of their private keys and verify that, that, those, that those keys, you know, that their Bitcoins are not being commingled or lent out unless they specifically authorize them. Yeah. And, and another, another point that we didn't hit on is forks, you know, and some of these forks have significant amounts of value. For example, sure. right now it's about 12 and a half percent of the total Bitcoin amount is, is available in forks. And so if the institutions aren't having the, the, the Bitcoins properly segregated, then how can they, because uh, the forks all happen at different blocks. And so how could, how could these fiduciaries know what forks they're entitled to? Oh yeah, they 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 have to get their feet wet. I mean, you know, it's it's just something that someone well, I mean, in the asset well, class. Well, I yeah. mean, are they are they going to leave uh, over a thousand basis points just sitting on the sidelines and not claiming it on behalf of their of their uh, you know the people who really own those assets? I mean, they wouldn't really be being a prudent fiduciary if they didn't. Well, gosh, did Coinbase deliver Bcash to its? Eventually, you know, and, and so did Bitcoin it took months. Trust and everything. Yeah, but I mean, that was kind of the first round. But now, you know, everybody's getting a lot more. They've gone through the process now. And so Bitcoin yeah. Investment Trust, you know, they did both Bcash and Bitcoin Gold. Uh, but yeah, so I mean, if, if, if these Bitcoins are getting lent out, uh, you don't get the fork. <laughs> and right. so, and so that could be a big problem because these forks could cause some type of uh, of solvency risk to to whoever can't deliver the securities. Right? <laughs> You're like, whoa, whoa, whoa! You you owe me not only Bitcoin, but you also owe me the Bitcoin Cash and the Bitcoin Gold, etc. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's a great point. I hadn't thought about that. I thought you were going in a slightly different direction, which is if Bitcoin does get overwhelmingly financialized and starts to look like gold. I think what's 
what Wall Street's risk in, in, in this leveraged financializing of Bitcoin is that, frankly, the community who really controls it, right, the UASF situation proved that the community, the full no- people who run full Bitcoin notes really do control it. And they'll just fork it and go to something else. It's the same reaction that would happen if there really were a state actor that took over Bitcoin in a 51% attack. The community would just pick up stakes and fork it and go to the honest chain. And I think that there's, you know, Wall Street probably doesn't understand. It's got a risk against the, the real people who control Bitcoin, which is full node users, that it, does, it didn't have with gold and other commodities that it went, went to town creating paper claims that well, it far exceeded the underlying. Well, the, the, this is kind of funny. I, went, I, I was actually at one of the major, uh, major Wall Street banks of their headquarters, I think in January, and about, you know, I was going to go in and give a little impromptu Q&A uh, in the middle of the trading day to the, to the guys on the trading floor. There were supposed to be about three or four. And next thing I know, there's like eight or nine people in there and they're all like managing directors and above. And so we're just kind of having a chat. And one of, the, one of the assertions I made was like, look, you guys can't make a short sell Bitcoin uh, like you've done with gold. Yeah. And one, one of them was like, well, why not? And I was like, because, <laughs> because, because big hodlers are going to fork it and then we'll bankrupt you. <laughs> right. That's exactly right. <laughs> because you're not going to have the fork because you've been rehypothecating and naked short selling it. And so we're going to squeeze you on the fork side. <laughs> and, you know, they're kind of like big eyeballs, you know. <laughs> so, um, yeah, they don't understand that risk. You're, you're absolutely right, Trace. I'm so glad we're talking about this because they yeah. don't understand. They can't control Bitcoin. Yeah. So, you know, and, and that you want to be a first class Bitcoin citizen, you got to run your own full node and you got to hold your own private keys. So let's, you know, as we as we kind of wind up the interview, let's switch our gears to the large macro picture, the, the geopolitical, the geostrategic uh, picture, you know, let's and let's look at it from the U.S.'s point of view, because the U.S. is the dominant unipolar uh, entity. So we had we had the Bank of England fail, and Isaac Newton created the gold standard. The gold mm-hmm. standard laid the foundation for just an unprecedented uh, golden age. And the founding fathers put it into the Constitution, right? You know, Article 1, Section 10, Clause 1. So we, we're supposed to have an equity-based monetary system. But that got eroded, and then we had Executive Order 6102 with Franklin Roosevelt that made holding gold illegal. And then the the case got squarely framed, uh, but the Supreme Court refused to hear it because it's a political question in City versus Dover of what is a dollar and whether it has to be gold or not. So they punted on that. So, you know, the system has to lurch from one crisis to another until eventually it'll accumulate or culminate in hyperinflation or, or deflationary depression. And then out of this 2007-2008 mess, this software gets sent out called Bitcoin. Yep. And it starts developing and it develops this market. And next thing you know, this thing's using more electricity than the entire country of Chile on an annual basis. And then there's this gigantic fight about how to scale it. And do we scale it in a way that you have to hard fork and centralize it? Or do we scale it with additional layers, you know, Adam Back and Nick Zabo's vision with, and then things like Lightning Network. But in order to really do that new development, you had to get segregated witness activated. And that became kind of a real knockdown drag out fight where the Chinese miners would not activate this stuff. And then on August 1st, you know, so we're at the one year anniversary of that. 
uh, SegWit got activated. Within a month, Russia and China and Iran had launched their new gold trading platform. Within a month of that, the CME futures got approved. And then now we've got LedgerX and, and Backed that are going to do physically settled Bitcoin uh, futures. And, and so this is, I mean, if you look at the light speed at which the, the pieces are moving on the chessboard, what effect would an equity-based monetary system have over, you know, if we transition from the current debt-based monetary system into an equity-based one, and if the U.S. is leading the road to that, what effect could that have for the U.S. over the next couple centuries? Oh, my gosh, it would be tremendously beneficial to the U.S. We had an equity-based monetary system really up until 1969, which is the year I was born. Uh, and, and that's when we started cheating um, by, by we, we always had debt, but the debt was always backed by real savings. And I, I gave a speech on this and showed the numbers uh, to the Mises Institute San Francisco Circle in, I believe it was April or May. Um, maybe you can put that in the show notes because it actually very clearly shows that the amount of, of non-financial sector debt was equal to the amount of personal savings in the U.S. up until 1969. And then we started cheating and debt started to exceed the, the amount of personal savings. That's what Mises would call circulation credit. That's unbacked claims um, to the wealth of the United States. And we just have gone to town on that. And so um, what we had was much, much more stability in the financial system and a greater period of wealth expansion when we were on an equity-based financial system. And I absolutely believed if we went back to that, we'd have a much fairer and more stable financial system. That is really what I'm passionate about, educating folks that we don't have a stable and fair financial system now. And the answer to that is not to put pedal to the metal on debt uh, and, and make it even more unfair and unsta unstable. The answer is to transition to an equity-based financial system. I don't think that the politicians and people in control would voluntarily do that, but I think it's coming. I think your point about Bitcoin being the world's reserve currency, eventually, I've said it may take 20 years, but we're going to be using it in payments. It's just too far, too much more efficient and safe as a financial system than, this, than the current system. But I, I think the current system is probably going to keep going for a while, and we're just going to continue to see worse in income inequality and, and bigger instability, bigger booms and bigger corrections in markets. If you look back, that's exactly the pattern that we've been in for the last 45 years or so. And um, it's, it's the pattern that's likely to continue until the world transitions to something better. And the great news is I used to be very bummed about this when I figured all this out, studying the alternative schools of economics after the financial crisis. I got optimistic when I figured out Bitcoin because it, I understood this is a way for individuals to protect assets and opt out. And, and I'll, I'll close these remarks by saying, the person who gave me the most sage financial advice in my life is my uneducated grandfather. He didn't, I, th I think he finished eighth grade. He, he was a farmer and he died before I was born, but my father passed the advice down. And my dad was born in December, 1929. So right after the Black Tuesday stock market crash or Black Monday stock market crash um, uh, in 1929. And he used to scoff at people with of all their paper assets. He never trusted the paper assets. He always understood that owning equity-based assets implicitly 
was the only way to protect your wealth. And he gave me, that was the most sage advice I've, I've ever had because I look at the incredible paper wealth that's been created. And I understand that it's unstable, inherently unstable behind it in the way that my grandfather inherently knew it was unstable. And he lost some money in a bank failure, but he was able to keep his farm and a lot of the other families in the area were not because they engaged in paper-based speculation. So it's, it was sage advice. Yeah. So, I mean, we look at the Stone Age didn't end because of an in, uh, of a lack of stones. And we've got Putin, you know, right. in 2016, he talked about whoever adopts blockchain technology first is, you know, is going to be a, a big leader. From what I understand, about 200 of the top people in the blockchain industry have been basically uh, had their Chinese passports taken away and they're being forced to uh, help come up with a, a a strategy for the Chinese government on how oh, to really? how to apply this, uh, yeah, and and so then it then it becomes a question for us, you know, and it's why why should we fear to use it, you know, an yeah. equity based monetary system? The world's at a very unique place where it's rethinking what money is. Is it gold, you know? And Chinese and the Russians are stockpiling that like crazy. But that's going to the past. And even if we used gold as a secure layer, we would have to build a second layer on top of it for the actual plumbing, like we've talked about. Yeah. And how, how would we build a secure layer on top of it? And then is it going to be the dollar? Well, it's, you know, the dollar and euro and ruble and all these things, they have all their own problems. Or is it going to be something else like Bitcoin? And Bitcoin, you know, it looks like it's getting the green light. A lot of big, major, serious players are moving into this stuff. And so, you know, why should we fear to use it becomes a big question because it could actually lay the foundation for a new golden age for the U.S. and enable the U.S. to maintain its financial and military and economic dominance far into the future. Would you agree with that? Oh, I completely agree. I I don't think the politicians will ever willingly go down that path because that uh, they they recognize that that they inherently dilute their own power. There's a reason why the fights that we're seeing for political offices are so nasty and so divided. It's because we put so much power into these positions. And, uh, you know, that's partly because they control the financial system. And at the end of the day, uh, if if the people actually control the financial system, we we end up with an equity-based financial system, then power will devolve back to where it should be, which is with the individuals. And we will be able to keep the, the fruits of our own labor. And we won't have to worry about whether our fin- a financial institution is going to default upon us. That is the ideal. And I, I think we're going to get back there. I just don't know what, what we're going to have to go through between now and then. And, and, and Bitcoin is what give, makes me optimistic. You've talked about greatest wealth transfer in history. And I think you're right. It's, it's wealth transfer from folks who store wealth in these unstable paper-based assets where you know you don't know how many how much overissuance of them has happened until you have a dull food situation, um, versus these stable equity-based assets like Bitcoin. And uh, you know it, it worries me that Wall Street is coming to financialize it, but it's uh, it's going to be a lot harder for Wall Street to financialize it the same way it has done with other equity-based assets. And your listeners need to. He, it, he, it need to, to, to heed the advice, which is hold on to your private keys because Wall Street cannot financialize something that it can't, hasn't gotten a hold of. Well, 
Great advice. Thanks so much for being with us, Caitlin. If people want to be able to find you, uh, how, how do they do that? Ah, uh, Caitlin-Long.com. And I've also just recently started to contribute to Forbes.com. That's where this series that captured your attention on, on financialization is published. Uh, so you find it at Forbes.com. Well, th- thanks so much for being with us. It's been a long time. We've been together in the space, rubbing shoulders. And uh, oh, yeah. I think we have a very bright future. So keep up the good work. Oh, you too, Trace. Thanks so much. Be sure to get a copy of the free Bitcoin guide at freebitcoinguide.com. Got a question or suggestion? Record your voice at bitcoin.kn. Don't be shy. To help the show, share bitcoin.kn with friends, post about it on Reddit, and otherwise spam the interwebs. Your iTunes comments and five-star reviews are very important to us. Please continue tuning in to the Bitcoin Knowledge Podcast, where we release interviews with the top people in the Bitcoin world. Now take some choline and let that Bitcoin knowledge consolidate.